0: All right, gentlemen, we'll be in Las Vegas. Welcome to Vegas. Las Vegas functions on a 24-hour a day schedule. pools the casino? Big volcano out in front. That's the Eiffel Tower Collage. Riviera the Mirage. Flamingo. Sahara. And MGM Grand. This isn't the real Caesars Palace, is it? I want to gamble. They always put the machines that pay off the most right in the front. Good luck. The Strip is just the most amazing stretch of the road, I think, probably anywhere in the world. Kickin' ass in Vegas. Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. Welcome to Las Vegas. History hasn't been fair to Billy Wilkerson. For years, a myth has lived on in romantic Hollywood lore that Bugsy Siegel is the father of modern Las Vegas, when in truth, the idea for the Flamingo was stolen and ruined by the notorious gangster who caused the project to cost six times more than its original projections. When it finally opened, it was a disaster of such catastrophic proportions that his partners in the mafia had him killed. Now it's time to set the record straight about the real man behind the Flamingo. Billy Wilkerson founded The Hollywood Reporter in 1930. It was Hollywood's first daily entertainment industry trade paper and reported on movies, studios, and personalities in a candid style. Each issue began with an editorial by Wilkerson which, at times, exposed corrupt studio practices, insider information, and the kind of things you'd expect to learn about watching TMZ or Extra. Billy's column went on to become one of the most widely read daily columns in the industry. In fact, It was reported that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt had a copy of the paper airmailed to him daily. Wilkerson became one of the town's most colorful and controversial figures. His method of soliciting advertising for the paper became the stuff of legend. He would literally blackmail studios to support the paper or suffer coverage blackout. Billy burned so many bridges that at one point, all of the studio heads banded together to not only stop advertising in The Hollywood Reporter, but to hold back news from the paper. When Wilkerson's reporters were barred from the lots, Billy told them to climb over the studio walls and sift through the executives' trash. It turned out to be the best thing that could have happened for the publication as it uncovered a ton of incriminating information about studio executives and movie stars alike that Wilkerson and The Hollywood Reporter gladly reported on. Wilkerson took the financial success of The Hollywood Reporter and used it to expand his business empire. The logical move was into the high-end nightclub and restaurants industry, as it would serve two purposes. One, he could diversify his business holdings into a new enterprise, and two, they would draw the celebrities his paper reported on right to his doorstep. Never one to do anything half-assed, Wilkerson would go on to become the nation's most successful restaurant and nightclub owner. It was said that he brought Paris to Hollywood. All told, Wilkerson would go on to own the Vendom, Cafe Trocadero, The Sunset House, Ciro's, La Rue, and Laegon. Much of Hollywood's documented social golden era were captured in these glamorous establishments. Make no mistake, Billy earned his success. He was an insufferable workaholic, and it contributed to his five divorces. In fact, it is said that everything he did in life was to excess. He'd drink 20 Cokes a day and smoked three packs of cigarettes. He was a compulsive gambler who would work in the morning and go to the track in the afternoon. Legend has it that Wilkerson used to keep a pair of dice in his coat and a deck of cards close by. He used to bet with the patrons of his restaurant. If they won, they wouldn't have to pay. In the 1920s, gambling and prostitution were easily available in California. After they were made illegal in the late 30s, the closest place to enjoy the recreation legally was in Nevada. Las Vegas became Wilkerson's favorite place. He would charter a plane in the morning, spend a few hours at the tables winning or losing around ten dollars or $20,000 before returning home to Hollywood. Like most gamblers, Wilkerson was superstitious. He had a rabbit's foot on his keychain that had gone bald from rubbing it so much. He also used to say Hail Marys as he rolled the dice. Wilkerson eventually came to accept that he had a problem. By the fall of 1944, his gambling debt was over $1 million and threatened to bankrupt his business. He shared his situation with friend, fellow card player, and head of 20th Century Fox Studio, Joe Schneck. Joe offered a suggestion that could solve both his financial situation and potentially satisfy his compulsion for being around games of chance. Be on the other side of the table. Build a casino. If over time the only person who wins is the house, be the house. As much as Wilkerson loved Las Vegas casinos, he hated the desert. The whole thing lacked the kind of glamor and sophistication he was used to in Hollywood. It made him realize the potential a casino built like the clubs he owned on the Sunset Strip. To attract the Hollywood crowd, he knew he would need something on a grand scale and it would need to be much more than just a casino he envisioned a place unlike any Las Vegas had ever seen before. A place that not only catered to gamblers, but was an oasis to people who just wanted to relax. A luxurious home away from home with high-quality shows, fine dining, and outdoor activities. In 1945, Wilkerson spotted a 33-acre lot on Highway 91. To avoid having the cost of the land artificially inflated due to the interest of a known high roller like Wilkerson, He had his attorney, Greg Bautzer negotiate and purchase the property under his own name. He paid $84,000 for the land. Once the deal was done, Wilkerson summoned the designer of several of his Hollywood supper clubs. One of the hottest architects in the country, Wayne McAllister. Wilkerson wanted to build a massive complex. A luxury casino hotel with a showroom, a nightclub, restaurants, a cafe, and a health club. Outside would have private bungalows, feature amenities like a swimming pool, tennis, badminton, and handball courts, a nine hole golf course, a shooting range, and stables housing 45 horses. When it came to the casino, Billy had some very specific ideas in mind. He was very candid about his compulsion during the design phase in an effort to tap into the psyche of a gambling addict, in an effort to build the perfect casino to encourage that behavior. In essence, he was building the perfect place for him to gamble in, an environment so perfectly tailored to a compulsive gambler's needs, it would make it nearly impossible to leave until one lost all of their money and had no choice. The concepts he developed are now considered Casino Design 101. The casino would be placed in the center of the hotel, so it would require guests to walk through it to get to any place in the resort. While common practice at the time, Standing diminished the pleasure of the game for the gambler, so he mandated chairs and stools be at every table. He had custom gaming tables built with curved edges and leather cushion padding so that they would be more comfortable to play around, especially for extended periods of time. Windows would not be viewable from the casino level of the property to avoid the distraction of daylight caused to a gambler's concentration. The interior lights of the casino would always be dimmed to prevent a gambler from being able to distinguish the passage of time. Lastly, to prevent the disruption of time, Billy would not allow any wall clocks to be displayed or viewable from the casino, rationalizing that a gambler didn't want to be reminded that he had other obligations to attend to. Unlike the casual atmosphere available at other hotel casinos in the market at the time, Wilkerson would require the staff of his resort to be dressed in formal wear. Construction started on the project in November of 1945, about one year after the property was purchased. One item Wilkerson had trouble coming up with was a name for the property. It was something he usually did long before his projects were completed and usually inspired from his many travels. Since he was a big fan of exotic birds, he began going over dozens of bird names. He eventually settled on a pink bird he had seen during a trip to Florida. So a graphic designer was brought in to work on the logo, and the working title for the project became The Flamingo Club. The true origin of the name, along with virtually everything true about the concept for the resort, would become lost in favor of a glorified myth fabricated by Bugsy Siegel, but we'll get to that in a minute. Despite his grand vision, Wilkerson was smart enough to know that he didn't know how to run a casino. But it was common to have casino operations subcontracted out in those days for a cut of the profits as a silent partnership. So we tapped the talents of Gus Greenbaum and Mo Sedway, who were at the time running the El Cortez. Wilkerson was familiar with Gus and Mo because he owed them $100,000 in gambling debt. With nearly a third of the construction complete on the project, Wilkerson ran into financial trouble. In a post-World War II economy, building materials were hard to find and what you could find had overinflated prices. As a result, the cost of building the Flamingo Club skyrocketed to $1.2 million, and Billy didn't have it. He had already invested $300,000 into the project, so abandoning it wasn't an option. To raise the money, he started offering discounts to those that would pay for future advertising in The Hollywood Reporter. Studio execs who didn't immediately buy into Wilkerson's new pricing structure were threatened to not have their movies reviewed by the publication. The situation became so desperate that in some cases, he would take payment in the form of surplus lumber and metal from the studios. However, the materials he was able to get were often of little value to the project. He hated borrowing money, but with no other option, he approached Bank of America. Bank of America initially declined his request because they had already extended him a line of credit for $200,000 the year before. Using The Hollywood Reporter as collateral, he was able to get the bank to agree to give him a loan for $600,000. Another $400,000 came from longtime friend Howard Hughes. But that still left him $200,000 short of what he needed. Out of options and patience, he decided to do what so many gamblers have tried to do, win the rest of it. Instead, as has happened to virtually every gambler who attempts to do this, no matter what TV and movies tell you, Not only did he not succeed, he lost it all. So in January of 1946, the project came to a complete halt. Billy paid off everyone in cash and left the Flamingo Club project unfinished. At the same time, Mo Sedway brought Wilkerson's project to the attention of Meyer Lansky and proposed that it could be a unique opportunity for the mafia to expand their legitimate business ventures. In 1946, Many believed Meyer Lansky to be one of the heads, if not the head, of the syndicate. Organized crime, the mafia, or whatever you want to call it. Meyer was said to have taken over for Lucky Luciano, who was deported to Italy and barred from returning to the US because of convictions related to running organized crime operations. It took some convincing, but eventually Lansky saw the potential of a grand project like this and decided to invest. The group sent a representative to make Wilkerson an offer. In February of 1946, a man walked up to Wilkerson and said he was from a New York firm interested in investing in the property. In exchange for funding, Wilkerson would give up two-thirds ownership in the project. While he was very interested in the proposal, Wilkerson demanded to remain in creative control as well as retain complete ownership of the land. Both conditions were agreed upon. When the Flamingo Club opened, Wilkerson would be the sole owner and manager of the property his new investors wanted to be silent partners in the casino. When asked how much he would need to complete the project, Wilkerson quoted $1 million. On February 26, 1946, after sitting dormant for a month, Wilkerson received $1 million and a one-year deadline to complete the project. Fully funded and in complete creative control, it finally seemed like there was nothing that could prevent Wilkerson's dream casino from becoming a reality. One month after construction resumed, Moe and Gus brought Benjamin Bugsy Siegel to the construction site. Bugsy was introduced as the person Meyer appointed to keep an eye on the syndicate's new investment. Working with organized crime and these sorts of arrangements was nothing new to Wilkerson. He owned a speakeasy for a time in the 20s during Prohibition. He relied heavily on gangsters for the booze that kept him in business. Not to mention, Billy's gambling vice of course brought him into regular contact with reputed mobsters. At first, Siegel had no interest in any assignment that took him to Vegas on a permanent basis. He had just recently moved out to Beverly Hills and was enjoying the podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this premium content preview. For access to the rest of this episode, as well as all the premium content we offer, go to patreon.com slash 360vegas. A monthly subscription will give you access to the enhanced version of the podcast, often with bonus content, Exclusive podcasts like 360 Vintage Vegas, 360 Origins, 360 Vegas Movies, insider information on all things 360 Vegas, 360 Vegas Vacation, and early access to everything. To subscribe, simply go to patreon.com 360 Vegas. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Or you can find a link to Patreon on our blog, 360VegasPodcast.com.